Today on Nurse Talk, Tarbell investigative reporter Donna Shaw reports dangerous drug shortages threaten patients in ERs, cancer clinics, and ambulances. Danger in disguise? Why nurse licensure compact seems like a good idea, but not so fast. Who is Congressman John Larson and why do we care? All this and more today on Nurse Talk. Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with my new co-host, Patty Lockard, filling in for Shane Mason. And I am one of thousands of nurses on duty this very minute. As always, we have a great show today. In a few minutes, we'll be talking with Tarbell investigative reporter Donna Shaw. Her recent report, titled Dangerous Drug Shortages Threaten Patients in ERs, Cancer Clinics, and Ambulances, points out growing concern in the healthcare community over lack of access to the most effective medicines. Donna will talk about her findings and what's being done to address the issues. And Casey, lots more later, including something called compact licensure for RNs. In short, what it does is allows nurses to have a license in multiple states. Sounds great on the surface, but nurses have major concerns. And Healthcare in America's senior correspondent Donna Smith talks about U.S. Representative John Larson. Who is John Larson? If you don't know, stick around. And let's not forget to thank all of our listeners on the Tom Hartman program, Progressive Voices, Tune In. WFTE, Pandora, iTunes, and all of our broadcast partners. We continue to assert that the compact purports to fix a problem that simply does not exist. Supporters of the compact claim that nurses will move freely from state to state. However, today, with the advent of technology, a nurse can currently get a license to practice nursing in Minnesota within 24 hours or less. How much easier can it be? Additionally, it has suggested that the compact will improve access to nurses during the disaster. Yet, this too is allowed when a state declares an emergency. That was a clip from comments made by an RN who represented the Minnesota Nurses Association at a hearing about licensure compact legislation. Ask yourself, who do you trust to make decisions about who should be allowed to practice nursing in your state? Do you trust your state's nursing board? Or would you trust an organization with little oversight and a comfy relationship with corporate sponsors such as Big Pharma? That question is central to our discussion today. The National Council of the State Boards of Nursing, known as the NCSBN, is a not-for-profit but multi-million dollar private organization promoting itself as the best entity to decide who should be licensed as a registered nurse, no matter where they live or work in the country. Most nurses know the NCSBN as the entity that administers and collects fees for the nursing exam. But the group also lobbies for other nursing regulatory initiatives and programs that advance the interests of its corporate partners, among which it counts big pharma companies such as Merck and Pfizer and global healthcare conglomerates such as Health Sciences, McKesson, and Johnson & Johnson. Today, we're going to take a look at the statewide licensure compact for registered nurses and find out why what may seem like a good idea on the surface is actually a threat to the nursing standards and jeopardizes patient care. Here with us to talk about this is Michelle Mahone, Nursing Practice Specialist for National Nurses United. Michelle, welcome and thanks for being with us today. Hello, how are you? We're doing good. How are you doing? Great, great. So can you give us an overview of what the National Council of State Boards of Nursing is, how long it's been around, and how it works? Well, sure. As you mentioned, that most people know the National Council as the entity that administers the licensure examination, but they're doing more than that. Started in the late 90s, 
And really the idea behind it was to have like one entity overseeing nursing practice in all 50 states. And it has taken them some time, but they are slowly gaining some ground. One of the things that is important to note about them is that they then adopt a, like a universal nursing practice, I guess an act, you could say, gets adopted by the states. And that Nursing Practice Act then governs nursing practice in the states that have adopted it. So now they've really taken what was in the public realm and put it into their realm. Michelle, how do nurses currently get licensed and does renewal require continuing education credits in all states or just some of them? Well, most nurses, you know, have to go through their individual state and they apply for licensure and they have to meet the standards set forth to practice nursing by that state. And then they take their examination and they become a licensed registered nurse or a licensed practical nurse. And to maintain licensure, Then nurses go on, most nurses do, that they have to go on and take continuing education courses. However, with the National Council, you know, overtaking some of the standards, they're eliminating that requirement. So there are um, some states that no longer require continuing education, which, of course, we know as nurses uh, who are lifelong learners that we, we do need to uphold that value in our profession. So let's talk about compact licensure. On the surface, it looks like a good idea, but not so fast. They clearly have some ulterior motives here. Absolutely. I mean, you can just tell by the sponsor list that it's probably no good. You know, as nurses, in our experience, when we've seen the corporate value set overtake, um, you know, various aspects of healthcare, what we lose is the human values and the the priorities that serve our patients and, and really serve the philosophy of nursing. So when you look at putting this, taking this from the realm of public to private, it's disturbing because you start to see the degradation of the values of holding high standards. Um, You mentioned continuing education, of the assurance that there are the protections there. You know, the Board of Nursing's role is to protect the public. And uh, when these protections get diminished, that puts our patients at risk. So it's really important that we stand where we can and defend the practice of nursing and the safety of our patients as advocates, um, which is central to our role as nurses. So, I mean, initially, the idea of increasing the use of technology in our practice and making what they call nursing practice borderless um, really just gives the employer, and uh, nurses will find this word to be very familiar, ultimate flexibility, you know, to just really plug in a nurses and nurses and nurse, not just within their own state, but across the country and really just have the ultimate ability to just make the rules for what nursing practice means across the board. And Michelle, I would imagine that all states have different requirements and different regulations that they need to adhere to. And so one size fits all is certainly disturbing. Well, it is. I mean, there are some places where people have been able to keep in place uh, stronger protections for patients in general. And uh, the public and nurses should have a right to weigh in on those standards. And so it's really not just about having the strongest standards. It's about having the ones that the public weigh in on and having a process that is democratic and inclusive. And the one that ultimately, you know, through that process results in the best patient protections. And some states have done better than others at putting those protections in place. States like California, states like Minnesota, 
they've really done a good job to keep those protections in place for our patients and really ultimately also for our nurses so, you know, that we can't just eliminate the title of nurse and who gets to practice nursing and, and, and how. So it's very important to uphold the strongest standards where we can. So I understand that there's 31 states that have already implemented the compact licensure legislation. Is that correct? That is. That's right. And of the remaining states, um, are they engaging in this legislation? Well, the National Council has a plan, and they do approach the legislature and the boards of nursing in the states where they are not yet compact, and they give their pitch as to why uh, it would benefit the industry primarily is the, is the main pitch that they put forth to legislature. And then, uh, of course, they, they try to also paint it, you know, to nurses in the state boards of nursing as like, you know, this is really the way of the future and there's no avoiding it. So they are making efforts, and where NNU nurses are encountering these fights, we recently did in Minnesota, provide testimony as to why we think that something that might sound good on the surface really isn't in the best interest of our practice or our patients. So we have to continually be vigilant, to in the states where it's not yet there. That's one of the unspoken benefits of the borderless practice, where they've got a very flexible, temporary work pool to pull from to undermine nurses who are engaging in the very kinds of fights that are necessary to keep our patients safe. It's so disturbing to me that these things happen. I have to say they're very clever. They've gone by this, uh, you know, if you can't win the game, then just change the rules. And that's what they're doing is they're changing the rules so that they can control the profession and make it work the way they want it to. Absolutely. So fast forward to today, nurses continue to have great concerns about the motives behind compact licensure and about NCSBN. What are some of the concerns? We've mentioned some of them. Are there others out there I haven't mentioned? Well, I mean, I think the biggest one is once this entity controls the Nurse Practice Acts of the state, if you think about how that governs our practice, they can act in our scope of practice then uh, this entity in the future might have the power to change what it means to be a patient care provider, to create, to erode scope of practice, which is very important because we all know that our patients need a registered nurse there at the bedside with them to uh, give them the best care, constant vigilance and surveillance, and the ultimate uh, protection. So our patients do deserve registered nursing care. If they change the rules in such a way that they can make it so that more non-licensed personnel are now being able to do the job of a registered nurse or just really eroding the standards. We all know how hard we worked and how valuable the standards that we worked for to become nurses were. And now if those are gone, then are we really serving our patients? So we, we really need to protect our profession. I think that's one of the biggest dangers. Our scope of practice is central to what makes us registered nurses. And if that changes, then basically uh, the role of registered nurses is gone. How are nurses and National Nurses United and other organizations working to back this momentum up? And how are you going forward? And what would you like to see happen? Well, I think the first thing is for nurses to, to use their critical thinking skills to think about the nurse compact licensure not just from the perspective of, you know, a decreased regulatory burden. Um, Oftentimes, there are a lot of programs that are put forth saying, you know, well, it's less red tape, less cumbersome, it'll be easier for you. And I think that's the main thing. It's like we need to think beyond that 
first of all, and, and understand what this entity really is, who is really behind it. And second is when we hear about the effort for the compact licensure in our own states, uh, when you're monitoring, hopefully, the activities at the Board of Nursing, um, and that's one of the things that NNU does regularly, then weigh in and say, this is not what you want. So those are really the important things, just to say no. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Michelle? Well, definitely. I think, um, you know, nurses together collectively, we have so much more power. And, um, you know, having the benefit of an organization like NNU behind you and with you and all of our nurse members across the country, then when you're a part of that, we have so much more power to influence the future and shape of nursing and to bring it back to the people-oriented focus as opposed to the corporate profit-oriented focus. And that's really, um, I can't encourage nurses enough just to get engaged in the issues that are really central to our profession. And that's the primary role, you know, is that uh, NNU is the, the national voice for direct care nurse. You know, we see so much going on and, and nurses feel frustrated that this, that the activities of, of some professional associations don't seem to be really improving their daily life. But our number one job is to protect patients and advocate for the protections for nurses. And this is just one extension of that. So true. So, Michelle, thank you for your years of being a nurse, but I really want to thank you for your years of advocacy because it's so important for nurses to fight for each other and to fight for our patients. So thank you. I appreciate your work. Thank you. For more information about this topic, visit nationalnursesunited.org. Don't go away. Much more to come. You're listening to Nurse Talk Radio on Progressive Voices. Tune in and all of our broadcast partners. ever wonder what your health care premiums do pay for? Well, a big chunk of your money goes to marketing, advertising, lobbyists, outrageous salaries. Oh yeah, profits. Imagine if all the money you pay every month just went to health care. Maybe then all of your health care needs would be covered all the time. We need California One Care. More for you, less for them. California One Care. Full care for all for less. We're a company approaching 200 million in sales. We have 160 employees in the United States in various locations. And what we have seen is that healthcare has been a runaway cost. This cost is about 18% of our economy, of our gross domestic product. It detracts from our ability to hire employees and retain employees. It is a disincentive for us to grow our businesses in the United States. So that's a really serious problem. And we're competing with other economies, other modern industrialized countries, Western European countries, Canada, that have health care costs half of ours. Uh, you know, we were up in Canada, and it certainly doesn't get in the way there. We met a lot of conservative business people who embrace their single-payer model. So throughout the country, we're seeing this initiative for single-payer emerge as a moral standpoint. 
there are going to be more and more people, especially in the age group of 50 and over, who, because age rating is allowed with premiums, be either unable to afford to cover themselves with insurance or they will purchase the insurance and be unable to use it because they won't be able to afford the copays, the deductibles, and the out-of-pocket expenses. Healthcare is a human right. It's not something that ought to be bartered like a commodity. And we're going to have to be very vigilant about trying to help one another and trying to advocate as strongly as we possibly can to get this change before we end up sending more people into ill health or, sadly, watching more people die because they can't access basic health care. We are nurses, so we cannot diagnose, prescribe, or treat. But listen to us anyway because we like to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with Patty Lockard. I am one of the thousands of nurses on duty today. I'm not, but I support nurses 100%. Thank you. Casey, our next guest lives to find stories and information that we usually don't find in the mainstream media. Donna Shaw is an investigative reporter for Tarbell. In the era of so-called fake news, it is critical to know and research our news sources. That's why Tarbell is expanding its excellent coverage and why it's supported by readers and not influenced by politics or corporate donations. With us is Donna Shaw. Donna recently wrote about dangerous drug shortages that threaten patients in ERs, cancer clinics, and ambulances. Donna, welcome to Nurse Talk, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. So it seems like a pretty big deal, Donna. So my first question is, why? Why is this happening? Well, there are a number of whys, but I think mostly it boils down to economics. Uh, The Food and Drug Administration, a couple of months ago in November, held this day-long hearing, you know, eight hours of just discussing this, and they had all kinds of experts, panels of experts, people in the audience. You, you had doctors, nurses, academics, pharmacists, manufacturers, hospital people, pharmacy benefit managers, you know, the whole gamut. And what they actually said was, was, I thought, kind of frightening because what they're saying is that the drug shortages problem has been pretty severe for uh, at least a decade Uh, Most of it involves sterile injectable drugs, you know, products that are the backbone of treatment in emergency rooms and cancer clinics and in ambulances. Um, There were a lot of numbers they threw around, but at least 50% and maybe as much uh, at times as much as 80% of these drugs are in short supply. So it's a pretty serious issue. But I I still am not grasping the why of that. Are the drugs not available to be made? Are we not putting enough, are there not enough people skilled enough to make those drugs? Uh, The answer is yes to everything that you're thinking. I mean, these shortages are being caused by a confluence of events, really, that involve, you know, everything from global economics to politics, even Mother Nature. So, for example... One of the big problems is that a large percentage of the drugs that are in short supply uh, are produced by only one or two companies on the planet. So if something happens to one of the facilities, or worse, you know, there's a a real issue there. Um, There's other problems as well. For example, the Federal Trade Commission, you think of drugs as being, of course, they're they're, um, overseen by the Food and Drug Administration. But interestingly, the Federal Trade Commission is not required to discuss with the FDA when they're looking at, uh, when they're evaluating corporate mergers. So 
So if two companies are joining together that make the same injectables and now suddenly they merge and there's only one, um, the outcome, that, uh, you know, the potential outcome of that is not really considered uh, other problems. And wait, right? go back to that a second. Sure. So, th- so sure. there is no legislation, there is nothing that oversees that that says, hey, wait a second, that's going to... Uh, make it worse for us in the long run because we'll have even more shortages if it's just one company. Yeah, and, and that's that's a big problem because, you know, look, we're a capitalist country. Yes. And so, you know, the FDA, it's not like the FDA can order people to make certain drugs, and it's not like the Federal Trade Commission can order companies not to merge if there's no good reason that they shouldn't. And you would think that drug shortages would be a pretty good reason, but it has not really been considered here at least so far, at least so far. Donna, you said something about 10 years. This has been going on or building up for 10 years. Why yeah. Why so long? And what else, or did have we heard anything about this up until this time? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I've been covering the, the you know, these types of issues. I've been covering the FDA and, and um, pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies for, you know, like 25 years. And this was the first time I had heard about this. And I was shocked that it was not more widely known, given the severity of it. I'm hoping that Tarbell will be able to raise the profile of this, certainly. It's a, it's a major issue. Well, there are some examples that you write about that I want to ask you about. So at sure. hospitals, newborns are dying because of zinc deficiency? The, yeah, I couldn't I, believe that. You know, That's um, shocking. Um, there was um, th- there was some discussion, some considerable discussion about that. We're seeing this problem. It only used to be seen in developing countries, but now in this country, one of the shortages and long term is in injectable zinc. And you know, globally, zinc deficiency is supposed. I think it contributes to maybe half a million deaths per year in infants and children under five, right? And you don't think of it happening here. But I began to look through PubMed, and I'm looking at peer-reviewed journals, and I'm looking at the CDC, at the you know, morbid- Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, and there's all kinds of cases now here. And most of the children, thankfully, most of these, they're mostly neonates, and most of them aren't dying. But there have been deaths in this country, and one expert said, you know what, the younger clinicians in these hospitals, they don't even know exactly what the appropriate amount of the zinc is to give to a baby because these shortages have lasted for their entire careers. So they don't even know that there's supposed to be some other way to do things. This is also shocking to me. I'm having a hard time (laughs) even talking. Uh, Another example, Donna, is ambulance patients are screaming in pain because the crews don't have sufficient painkillers. Talk about that. Yeah, Yeah, this, uh, this example came from the National Association of EMS Physicians. Uh, they've been dealing with uh, this problem for more than 10 years. The vast majority of the medicines that are stocked in ambulances are sterile injectables, things like painkillers, uh, cardiac arrest medications, antiemetics. They are having a significant amount of trouble stocking uh, these medicines for ambulances. And uh, the representative from this group, he said, you know, I'll give you an example. You've got a skier with a broken leg. And we've got to bring them down the mountain without any painkillers. Good luck driving down the mountain with this yes. poor guy, you know. But then again, I'm thinking we should look at other alternatives. So I get the injectables and how hard that is to create and make. But there are drugs 
they make dissolving drugs that you put on your tongue and they disappear instantly. So I'm thinking right. about painkillers and thinking, so why aren't we using things like Ativan that you put under your tongue that'll take the edge off of, yeah, and more and of more, the pain? More and more they're having to resort to those kind of alternatives. Yes. The difficulty is that, at least in some cases, the alternatives just don't work as well. You're right. And that's you don't want one of your patients screaming in pain. Nobody wants that. Right. You know? And but, your IM, your injectables are much quicker acting. And, yeah, it, yeah. you know, it is a better drug. So I get that. I I just still struggle with why the injectables are so hard to make and to have enough on, yeah. on hand. That's the part I'm kind of struggling yeah. with. I don't get that. Oh, I, I don't blame you. I know that uh, one of the experts at the FDA meeting, he's the uh, immediate past president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and he was so frustrated. He said, you know, a carpenter, a carpenter doesn't go to work every day saying, gee, will I have nails today? Yes. Will I have a hammer today? And that really struck me that that's the issue, uh, that that's how severe this issue is. It is, because um, another, another example you use, pediatric cancer clinics, scrambling oh, yeah. to get cheap drugs that can help their young patients. That's That one was just a stunner to me. Again, yes. I had never heard this before. Um, the data were, you know, 85% of the kids that these cancer doctors see, the pe- pe- mostly they were talking about pediatrician, pediatrics cases. And they said, you know, 85% of these kids we can cure with these older off-patent drugs, but there are no really good alternatives. The physicians are just, I talked to one in particular, he was just furious about it, you know. He said, look, these sterile injectables are the backbone of chemotherapy yes. for kids and for adults too, for that matter. And his pharmacy, apparently they've got somebody who just spends all day on the phone every day, 40 hours a week, trying to find these medications. And, you know, here we're talking about life and death. In the richest country in the world, that's reprehensible. That, okay. that's, that that's what we've gotten to with our drug products. And what's reprehensible is we're just now hearing about it. This is the first that, that the public is being notified. Yeah, I mean, I was, as I said, I've covered, um, I've covered this industry since the 1990s, and I was stunned when I heard about it. It was just something I had never, I, it was hard to conceive of, you know. But again, you know, these problems, you know, for one thing, the price of generics, these are all generic drugs, almost all of them. And the prices are falling. Uh, again, it's a matter of economics. It's harder for these companies to earn profits. A lot of them are going out of the business. It's also really difficult and cost costly to make sterile injectable products, and many, many manufacturers have severe safety problems that sometimes, you know, I mean, if a little bit of, you know, you can't really say about a little bit of bacteria, any bacteria that gets into a production line, you're probably going to have to shut down production for maybe yes. months, if not longer. Yes, you are, and hard um, to get rid of. Yeah, and so we've got all those kinds of issues going on. Donna, what agencies are involved in monitoring this, and what's being done to fix it? Well, obviously, the lead agency would be the Food and Drug Administration, um, and uh, you know, but they're dealing sometimes with things they can't do much about. Like, for example, the FDA has no control over the fact that very few manufacturers actually have access to the basic ingredients they need. Also, you've got other kind of, you know, site interruptions at manufacturing plants. You've got supply chain breakdowns. There can be trade wars, hurricanes, fires. I mean, how do you control for that? How do you control for Hurricane Maria hitting Puerto Rico, where there are several of these manufacturing plants, including one that produces sterile saline solution, and suddenly they're down, they're offline, and they're offline maybe for months or longer. 
That's shocking. Yeah. Donna, yeah, what, el- what else would you like to share with our listeners? Well, one of the things I would like to say is that they ought to get involved. Um, there are many ways in which your listeners can get involved, either through their professional organizations or their hospital pharmacy uh, departments in reporting these shortages. So Tarbell, for example, which is tarbell.org, there's a link on our page saying drug shortages, what you can do. Um, the Great. FDA also has a drug shortages page, and uh, you can report them there. You can report shortages to the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. They have a form to fill out. But you know what? Um, I mean, just speaking from my perspective as a journalist, journalists love to hear compelling human interest stories. Yes. And that's so, you know, talk to reporters. Also, hey, guess what? We have a, pre- a presidential election coming up. So call your representatives in Congress. Call the White House. The White House is involved in this issue. Uh, at least one of the main Democratic candidates for president has actually uh, introduced legislation called the Affordable Drug Manufacturing Act, which would seek not only to reduce the high cost, but would also address drug, drug shortages. So get in touch with these people. You know, members of Congress, politicians, they love having hearings. They love the exposure. Um, those are some of the things that your, your listeners can do. Thank you so much. Donna, I want to thank you for your time and for your reporting. We're definitely going to have you back on because this is a topic that we need to hear more about. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. We're talking to Tarbell investigative journalist Donna Shaw. For more information about this topic and Tarbell, visit tarbell.org. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard, and especially for sitting in today. Sound design and engineering, June Miller and JMC Sound. Taylor Lockard Research. And National Nurses United and all the nurses on duty today and, of course, our listeners and guests. Take care and visit us at nursetalksite.com or like our Facebook page at Nurse Talk.